Greetings, everyone. I'm excited to welcome Dave Campbell, co-founder and CEO at Tropic to the show. Dave, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Ben. It's a pleasure. Yeah, looking forward to the conversation, Dave. So let's start this off. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. So I usually start with where I grew up. I, I grew up in the Mojave Desert in a small town called Victorville. That's in Southern California. But I usually don't say Southern California because what people think of is most definitely not where I grew up. And I grew up on a cattle ranch actually there. And this piece of land that's been in my family for a couple couple generations. And that's where I think I sort of got a lot of the bugs that have sort of guided me on my path. One of which is kind of the the bug to create. When you grow up in a very small, dusty desert town, you really have to create your own fun. There's no suburb. There's no stickball in the street. So you have to figure things out. My friends and I would do stuff like find mattresses that people dumped in the desert and tie them behind a pickup truck and ride them through the desert at like 50 miles an hour, things like that. Uh, but also I had this you know, very intense need to kind of get out of the place that I grew up. And I think that put a little bit of a chip on my shoulder and I thought for the longest time I was going to be a professional musician or a novelist, you know, something creative. And I went to school at UC Berkeley for that. I studied English literature and I thought I'm going to write the next great American novel. After college, I moved to a cabin in the woods in Northern California and tried to write the next great American novel, finished a novel, and it was American, but it probably wasn't great. But honestly, that experience gave me real clarity on my pull to entrepreneurship because I've always had a side hustle, like, you know, at the risk of dating myself, I was the guy in middle school that would download the new Lincoln Park album off of Napster and sell the disc at school for 10 bucks when it was 15 at the store, things like that. And advisors in my life were like, hey, look, you know, you've got a good degree. Your background actually might lend itself to tech entrepreneurship, even though you might not think so. Why don't you take a look and, and see? So I came to the East Coast and I started out actually as a writer at a digital marketing agency. This was in the era of content is king, where I think all of a sudden all these brands thought we need to have a blog. A blog is going to be the way that we drive sales of our product. But interestingly enough, in that era, 2012, 2014, no one actually looked to see if they were driving sales. They just put blogs up. I don't know if you remember that. It was a, it was a big thing for a while. And I kind of hacked the blog content to drive traffic. So I would look and see, you know, what's ranking number one on Reddit this morning. Let's take a Jeff of, you know, the kangaroo punching the guy or whatever, and then write a listicle blog post out of that and post it on RCA Radio's blog. And it would drive tons of traffic. And that was, you know, my first sort of brush with tech. That led me, you know, because the CEO of the company I eventually joined thought that was so funny. That led me into tech, into a MarTech company. Uh, called BounceX at the time. I joined actually as a CSM and two months later moved to sales. And, you know, two and a half years later, got promoted to VP, scaled the business from effectively zero to about $80 million in revenue. And that's where I basically learned everything about this industry, everything about the problem space that we're active in, and also about building companies to create solutions to problems. So after I met my co-founder there, I met a lot of the, you know, early team at Tropic there. After that, I had this idea in my head that I needed to get some kind of like very late stage finishing school, business school type experience. And I went to Microsoft and I was a global business manager at Microsoft with a $500 million territory. And you mentioned uh, when we were talking before we had record that one of the things you wanted to do is, you know, get founder thoughts out in the open so that other founders hear them. The first thought that I would put out in the open is if that sounds like you, if you are 
in a leadership position somewhere and you think, I just need one more experience before I'm ready to take the leap, just take the leap. Don't get that one more experience. I took, you know, I, it was fine at Microsoft. Ultimately, it taught me that big companies are not for me because you don't get to scratch that creative itch that I have in a big company. And I, you know, I got real clarity on the procurement problem, the problem we solve at Tropic while there, because I had then seen companies with no procurement, startups, mid-sized companies with fledgling procurement and the biggest procurement teams on planet Earth. And overwhelmingly across the board, I was like, this is the least penetrated business function I've ever seen when it comes to tech. And these are underdog people. And I want to be the company that makes procurement cool. And that was kind of the impetus to leave and start Tropic. So that's the, the long-winded bio. I love it. I love that intro and that background. And I, yeah, I saw on your LinkedIn profile, English literature. Now, you know, co-founder never thought that would be the case. But then, you know, sharing a little experience here already, you, you said you went to Microsoft, thought that would be a next step in your learning journey, but really, maybe obviously you learned some things there, but was, it sounds like that wasn't necessary. If you could go back in time, would you have just, uh, just then founded a company at that point? Absolutely. Yeah. And not a knock on Microsoft. You know, I know mm, yeah. you loved working there, but what I've come to find out is that the first thing you need to worry about is zero to one, right? The first thing you need to worry about is creating a product that people like and that they're willing to pay for and that they don't want to turn off and finding product market fit. You don't learn that in business school. You don't learn that in Microsoft, not to knock business school, but you can only learn that by doing it. You know, you can find blogs with frameworks and I've read all of them and my experience was different. So it's like the thing that helped me do that was my innate, you know, compulsion to run through 10,000 brick walls and make something happen. And the learning that surrounds that you pick up along the way, you, you know, there's no experience I think that can really prepare you for entrepreneurship other than taking the leap and doing it. And when you do start to scale, and we are now a Tropic, you know, a growth stage company, we're still, you know, very much growing in that we offer a platform that companies really need in the given market conditions. You kind of don't even really need to learn that stuff then because what you need to do is focus on the thing that makes you special, your superpower, and then hire amazing executives that already have that experience, right? That you otherwise would look for in doing what I did and going to Microsoft. So, you know, that... I, I have found that urgency is a huge thing for me. I approach everything I do with tremendous urgency, more than the people around me sometimes can tolerate. And I, if I could go back, I would have done it sooner. I wouldn't have wasted any time gathering additional experiences. Okay. Well, appreciate yeah, appreciate that insight. In good good transition into Tropics, tell us about products and services that Tropic offers. Yeah, definitely. So Tropic, we cheekily call the self-serve savings machine. And what that means is it's a consumer-grade procurement platform that lets you navigate every step of the procurement process uh, with ease and efficiency. And those are two very big and important words in procurement. If you've ever seen any of the legacy incumbent procurement platforms, you know they look like they were, they were designed in the 1990s. So bringing consumer-grade procurement experience, I think, is on its own disruptive. And then Underneath it, we have a unified data set uh, that enriches the quality of that procurement uh, platform so that it's more than just kind of empty workflow tech. It's tech that actually is showing CFOs every opportunity at their company for saving money, whether it's a license that is more expensive than an industry benchmark or a product that's underutilized or a set of tools that are shadow IT that have never been through an approvals process. It's 
giving you a pane of glass as a CFO for every single dollar of spend that you have and every savings opportunity that you have to take. And then it's giving you the tool to actually take advantage of those savings opportunities and orchestrate, you know, the work of procurement. So that's that's how we position Tropic and what it's doing for CFOs today. Love it. And just to be sure, th- is this beyond just say technology spend? Is it any type of spend within an organization? Any type of spend at all, yes. Uh, however, we're very opinionated towards software spend. What that means is most of our customers, before we get engaged, they have a process for how they buy stuff that's like a staggeringly complex document that lives in you know, their knowledge management system somewhere. And it's not only very confusing, but very fragmented. And end users, therefore, don't follow it, which is, as I'm sure you've seen, you know, one of the CFO's worst nightmares, right? So if you have someone in marketing who's trying to move at the speed of light and needs to buy something to enable them to do so, and they have to drive InfoSec approvals themselves, take it to legal, make sure legal approves it, take it to finance, make sure finance approves it. It's easier for them to just take out a credit card and buy it sometimes, and that's what they'll do. So what we do is we obfuscate all of that complexity in a platform that anyone can use because it's so easy. You just go to it, pick the thing you want to buy, all categories, hit send, and then you know automated approval workflows pull in all those people that would otherwise be looking at it. Where it gets opinionated towards software because software is such a slippery category of spend. Most of our customers have software as a top three or even top two line item in terms of expenses that the company is incurring. We can also give you an integrated view into how all of your tools are being utilized. So you're able to take contract metadata. What are we expecting to pay for this tool? Actual spend data that's coming in from your ERP accounting system. What did we spend on this tool? Uh, Utilization data. Are we using the stuff that we're paying for? And even engagement data. Are we leveraging the right licenses in this agreement for how our users are using this platform? And the reason we chose to go so deep there is we're long on software. I know the last two years have been turbulent, but software is not going anywhere. And on a long enough time horizon, software is going to be the most important commodity at every business. Most modern procurement platforms are really not built for software. They're built for widgets. They're built to buy, you know, bulk amounts of plastics and things like that. And and those commodities are are going away increasingly as products become digital, as remote work uh, spreads. So we're building the platform for tomorrow when everything runs on software. Okay. Yeah, no, I appreciate that insight. And then what year did you found Tropic? 2019. 2019. All right. And then do you guys have a, a headquarters location? Or are you remote? We're remote first and we have a headquarters in New York. We haven't nailed the hybrid thing. I don't know anybody that has, but what I know to be true is some people never want to come to an office and some people always want to come to an office. So we're built to cater to both HQ and New York seats, I think 50, although we have probably 80 in the New York Metro. And then we have like WeWorks in Atlanta, Denver, maybe SF and maybe Nashville. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I appreciate that. And then what's your current team size? The company is about 300 people. I actually don't know the exact number, but somewhere in that neck of the woods on LinkedIn, right. it's 325, but. Okay. Yeah. We're around 300 roughly. And anything you share around here are revenue ranges? No, we don't share that publicly. Although I will say that for folks who've been following along, we've been pretty public about the fact that we launched, we got to our first million in our first six months. And every year since launch, we've tripled the revenue. Okay, nice. So found that triple path. Yeah. 
Very nice. So tell us a little bit about your go-to-market motion ideal customer. Do you have certain employee sizes that you're after, certain industries, your horizontal verticals? But tell us a little bit about your prospects and your go-to-market motion. Yeah, so we've we've been very focused uh, in our go-to-market approach. That's something that I have found to be extremely effective. If you're not, you can wind up chasing cars and, you know, a nugget that probably isn't news to anybody. But if you're listening for insights on how to run your business, whatever you're doing with your ICP, it's too broad. Tighten it up. Until very recently, we would only sell to you if you were a B2B software company between 100 and 1,000 employees. And 100 is where the software problem starts to be painful enough that you're ready to invest money in a solution. 1,000 is where we would top out because we, it, the value proposition in the platform that we went to market with wasn't probably well-suited at the time for companies that had big and robust procurement teams. That being said, we've actually just reshuffled that uh, pretty considerably. We're still focusing on B2B software companies. Now our ceiling is up to 10,000. And this is because we have a huge suite now of integrations that we didn't used to have and a lot of enterprise-ready features and functionality that help you navigate the entire procurement process as opposed to just one piece of it. We're still not going after the Fortune 50 yet. And I think the next thing that we do to expand will likely be to expand into adjacent uh, categories, adjacent verticals of industries, right? So we're doing an exercise right now to determine, is there another you know golden egg out there somewhere? Should we be in healthcare? Should we be in higher ed, you know, should we be in banks, you know, so on and so forth. So that's how we have kind of evolved our go-to-market. And that's where we're focused in terms of customer base today. Okay. So first, so B2B software, 100 to 1,000 employees. Now you push through that threshold up to 10,000. And do you see any friction? I assume employee size it up to, up to 10,000. They've got formal procurement divisions. Are you looking to How's that sales motion? Is it like, hey, let's improve your process. We're not trying to change you. How does that look when you talk to those large procurement orgs? Yeah, so I think a big piece of it is that our first go-to-market, we offered the technology, we offered this add-on procurement service, right? And that was like a, a jackpot value proposition for that 100 to 1,000 person market segment because none of these teams have dedicated procurement. Most of them don't, right? However, we never want that to be the long-term growth strategy of the business because, you know, we'll always have the service, of course, but you can't grow the service linearly with your business beyond a certain point. It becomes challenging to scale. We never wanted to make any sacrifices on the integrity of that product. So what we did is we created a ramp for graduating beyond that service into the platform. So the service for us is mining data and insights. Those data and insights are then repackaged in the upmarket offering as a self-serve solution. So instead of doing procurement for you. We're turbocharging procurement for you. We're giving you the data that you need to make a really positive impact on your process. The other value proposition is just adoption. If you can increase adoption of a procurement process, you can increase the percentage of the spend that you're managing, right? If folks aren't following your process and they're buying stuff with a credit card, you don't have any chance as a procurement team to mitigate risk uh, to ensure compliance is being met, to negotiate better rates, those things that are so important to procurement teams. So that's where the consumer grade and user experience is especially impactful. And I would actually say that our sales cycle is actually almost exactly the same on these bigger customers as it was on the smaller customers because the pain point is just as acute. It's it's tough being a dramatically stretched and under-resourced one-person procurement team and a 5,000-person company. 
and, you know, Tropic can become your secret weapon. So that's kind of what the unlock looks for us, looks like for us in that 1,000 to 10,000 person uh, market segment. Yeah, appreciate that insight. And in probably a lot of executive use because you're vertically focused. So going B2B software and a lot of those discussions within executive teams, like, all right, should we now move into adjacent markets? And I assume you've had those discussions. How are you approaching that? Because each industry is so different, right? We know SaaS, very people intensive. Then we've got software, then we got travel, maybe some rent, right? Very <laughs> specific spend patterns within certain industries. Like if you went then to went after manufacturing, like, well, don't know anything about manufacturing so how do you think about that expertise and expanding into adjacent markets yeah that that's a really good question the answer is like very long the, the short answer you know we have a tiger team within our ops function we have a lot of like brilliant people there a lot a lot of them came from bain like we found a profile that works great and like people who know each other who are doing a really good job and what they're doing is they've stood up this tam analysis project where we're looking at i think like eight different dimensions to determine, you know, if a customer is a good fit for what Tropic does. And as you kind of astutely keyed into, one of the most important ones is that software is close to the top of your list, right? So if you are, you know, if you're buying a tremendous amount of real estate because that's the business you're in, or if you're buying, if you're selling a physical good and you're buying a tremendous amount of plastic and screws and stuff like that, we're probably not a good fit for you. But if you're in an adjacent category that relies on a tremendous amount of software, we probably are a good fit for you. And in fact, what we're finding that, you know, the couple that I mentioned are actually good candidates for this health healthcare and, and, and higher ed. The procurement processes at those companies, like if, if you thought it was fragmented in B2B SaaS, you can only imagine, you know, uh, a, a very large hospital with 10 different ERPs that don't talk to each other. It's uh, it's kind of a nightmare to sift through, which is a great opportunity to bring us in, right? So we haven't officially landed on that yet. That's uh, actually a Q3 OKR. So we should land on a decision to make at least with a clear set of data points by the end of this week. But I think it's just like, you got to be true to yourself, right? The key is to like really deeply understand what pain does your platform solve and to be really brutally honest with yourself about whether the person that you're trying to sell to has that pain. Because, you know, if you've been in sales before, you might be able to sell somebody on taking six meetings with you, right? You might be able to be persuasive enough to have the deal progress, but you're not ever going to be persuasive enough to convince product market fit where there isn't any, right? So we've been pretty ruthless in our market segmentation and in where we choose to focus our sales efforts. Yeah, really interesting. And just one more question, because I think there's just a lot of learnings in here, because this comes up all the time as far as going into other markets. With this team that you stood up to look at your know, TAM analysis, the eight dimensions, is this a cross-functional team? Is it a very specific expertise? You mentioned kind of Bain Consulting background. Tell me about the composition of this team yeah. to help you look at adjacent markets. Yeah. So we have a very strong center of operations. We invested in operations way more than any company in our peer set, way more than companies that are even further along than we are. We built, and that's my my co-founder, Justin, as the mastermind behind that. He is our chief operating officer and incidentally also uh, a former bank consultant. So he was the one who, you know, went and got all of his friends, right? But we've had a tremendous success with this model where we have a strong shared services ops team at the center. There's biz ops, there's customer operations, there's rev ops, soon marketing ops, and they all actually report internally up in the middle through the core ops function as opposed to be pushed out and distributed into the different teams. And that's kind of like, it's great because we can all go draw water from that same well. 
and they all have line of sight into all of the cross-functional projects in any given point in time. So that's how we're able to do stuff like this, which is a pretty cross-functional effort without stepping on each other's toes and duplicating work. And, you know, we've all seen when you like scatter the VCs, VC seeds too far and companies proliferate too quickly, you might have four people doing the same job before you even realize it. So having that strong central ops function, pretty unconventional, I think, for a startup at our growth stage, but definitely one of our secret weapons. And they kind of shuffle to whatever it is that needs attention and work collaboratively across the different teams. Okay. Yeah. Great insight. Appreciate sharing that, that how you've built up that, that theme. And as far as the capital raising side, looks like you've raised what about 65 million to date? Yes. It actually raised a little bit more than that, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the most recent, it looks like, so 40 million series B just most recently. Yeah. Yeah. We raised, we raised a bit more at a modest up round a little earlier this year. And the reason we did that strategically, it was, it was another 15. It was one, because we could get it, you know, at a higher valuation than we raised our last round, which I think is very rare in, in this macro, but also too, because that was all the cash that we needed to achieve our goals of profitability and a hundred million dollars in ARR uh, it, without running out of cash. So, so that's, that's all in, that's what we've raised to date. And tell us about the series A to series B transition. Yeah, you know, because I talk to a lot of, say, seed round founders, like trying to figure out product market fit, develop the product, and then they see little product market fit. Maybe we can start adding sales, get that Series A, build out that function. Now, tell us a little bit about your Series A to Series B transition. Yeah, definitely. So there was still, you know, at the Series A, there's still a little bit of like, here's what you have to believe to get on board with us. And we would we would paint the picture of where we are now, which is, you know, we took a compound company approach, meaning we built five products in parallel. We did that intentionally so that we could have a suite. Uh, and the suite we now use as commercial leverage to displace point solution competitors. So at the Series A, we had, you know, I think a couple million dollars in revenue at that time on Act One product. And what we needed to kind of show the market was here's the plan for Act Two and here's exactly how we're going to accomplish it. And maybe one or two test cases to give you validation that it's going to work. The difference between that and the Series B is the Series B is like now it needs to be working, right? And we're going to look at every single SaaS metric that you can think of. We raised with Insight, who's a very, very diligent company. And, you know, candidly, that was one of the things we liked about them because that was definitely during the Wild West period of cheap funding and, you know, talk to a CEO for 30 minutes and text a term sheet for 100x multiple, that kind of stuff was happening, right? And we've always been, on the one hand, I think very shoot from the hip and aggressive with our go-to-market and product strategy, but very conservative with kind of our capital strategy and, you know, with our spend, we eat our own dog food, right? So the, raising the Series B was no different. It was pretty quick because we were already working with a lot of Insights portfolio companies. And if you're looking for a little bit of a cheap code, cheap code on fundraising, that's one way to do it is, you know, align with that fund and get, you know, 20 customers in their portfolio that all love what you do. And it can accelerate that process. But then, you know, they they put us to task on some hardcore metrics, right? Like I think Deloitte came in and did like a month-long audit, you know, all that good stuff. So it was definitely like night and day, like this is kind of the big leagues of now you need to actually be a real SaaS company. And thankfully, we had all the evidence that we needed to show that we were nailing this transition into, you know, more of a self-serve platform with an add-on service versus where we began. So it was definitely a lot more robust, I will say. 
Yeah, yeah, because you hear about, you know, the story always matters, but Series A, B, and beyond, now the metrics, the numbers have to support that story. You know, now, like you said, just kind of continue to paint that picture. So appreciate that insight. Yeah. Uh, so any, you know, so you've had a, a bit of fundraising experience. So, so any fundraising lessons that you'd like to share with the founder community, whether that's from the seed Series A or Series B that stands out? Yeah, I mean, I could I could talk about this forever. These are going to be very tactical things that yeah. I'm about to say, right? So the first thing is, you know, while we just talked about the importance of the numbers, one mistake that I made early, especially at the seed round and even also at the Series A, is I thought what investors wanted was like the most buttoned up, prim and proper, like metrics-driven conversation. And what I found is what they actually wanted was like, why should we believe in you? Like, what can you tell us about your life, about your vision, about your product, about how you hire, that's going to make us believe in you. Because the metrics we can review in the data room, like we'll get there with the metrics and they're going to need to be there. But if we're not excited about you, that's not going to matter. So find your superpower going into those conversations. Don't worry about being informal off the cuff. I like, I'm a table pounder. I like getting people screaming excited. Like I did that with the investors and like, don't pretend to not be that person if that's who you are. That was a big learning for me. And then the second is you want to maintain control over every single step in the process and you want to drive the process. And you can do this in a couple of ways, right? These are all ideas that were given to me. None of these are my own, but I'll share them in case people listening don't have them. First and foremost, stage your process really, really tightly. I've seen so many founders and I advise for companies who are not doing this, but I've just seen it so many times who will just get a list of like a hundred investors with very little rhyme or reason and play the numbers game. Don't do that. Get like 15 or 20 lined up. Put the ones that, you know, and get get a handful of like, you know, without being derogatory, like tier three investors, ones that you're probably not going to raise with. Get through, you know, three or four of those guys, put them in the first week, go out and pitch and see what happens. And then come back from that week, you know, it's low stakes because you're likely not going to raise with one of these investors. Aggregate the feedback you got from them because they just told you every objection that you're going to hear. They just told you every problem that you have with your model. They just told you what they didn't like about how you told your story. And now you can reset everything and optimize it based on real world feedback. So once you've done that, then you go to your next stage. And this is when you want to meet with the cream of the crop. I would meet with the best funds on the planet, the ones you don't think would ever give you money in a million years, because sometimes they do, and meet with them that week and keep it real focused, like have all those meetings get knocked out in that one week and then move to kind of the next wave after that and so on. Don't let it go too wide because they all talk. They're all going to call each other and be like, hey, did you guys look at Tropic? What'd you think? You know, that that's going to happen in two seconds, which is why I like to start the cream of the crop because they don't take phone calls from the other ones. <laughs> so whatever happened in those meetings is probably not going to get shared. Uh, so stage it out, keep it tight, keep the list short. And then the last thing that I would say is be maniacal about control to the access of your data room. So something that we did is we we stood up a data room and, you know, inevitably after that first meeting, they're like, great. So we'd love access to the data room. And I said, great. Actually, we're going to be granting everyone access to the data room at the same exact time. And it's going to happen at 9 a.m. on this date. And make that date, you know, sub-bullet to that point, make that date the Friday before their partner meeting, which is always on a Monday. And because a couple of things will happen. One, they'll drive themselves crazy wondering who else is going to be in the data room, like how many other funds are involved, like what's going to happen. And now you've also driven tremendous urgency because they're going to have to get in there and try and crunch those numbers and come to a thesis by Monday, right? So you're controlling the process um, and you're creating competition, which is very important to effective fundraising. Um, it's not fun per se. You know, I don't like 
pulling these levers. But if you need to raise money, and you will at some point if you're trying to scale, and you need to do it quickly because you don't want to be distracted and taken away from building your business is what you're actually here to do. The only way to prevent those things from happening and from getting strung along for six months is to control every step. And those are the, the ways that, that I typically do it. Never be disrespectful. One thing I think is actually very disrespectful is if you intentionally are shopping around a term sheet, that's, you know, that's not kind. Then you're like moving in a direction of like rubbing investors maybe the wrong way. But, you know, there's a tactful way to make sure that what you're getting is fair. And, you know, when you're at that point, you can certainly do that in a much gentler way than, hey, these other guys said they're going to do this. What are you going to do? Right. So just some high level thoughts on the process. No, that's great. Great experience that, that you shared just there. So, yeah, it's great stuff. And at this stage of the business, Dave, do you have a favorite number or numbers or metrics that you're focused on to manage the business? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we look at all the all the bread and butter basics, of mm. course. You know, we're very, very focused on retention and on efficiency because that's kind of the market that we're in, right? Like I would be willing, thankfully, we have a really powerful new biz team and we haven't really softened our targets too much since the downturn. But the metrics that I'm more focused on are the long-term success of an account working with Tropic than our ability to sign new accounts. And specifically underneath that, we have all kinds of internal made-up Tropic-specific metrics that we know are success indicators that drive that retention. So like we just rolled out customer health scores not too long ago. Customer health scores for us, the, the biggest and most important leading indicator is actually a set of experiences around one specific feature area in the product. So we know that there's like a one-to-one correlation to not only retaining, but also growing uh, existing accounts when they engage with one part of our platform. So we've stood up dashboards. We're using Sigma as a BI tool. We have internal dashboards that are measuring that because we know the more we can influence that, the more all those big bread and butter SaaS metrics are going to come together. So I guess that would be my one thing is like we start at the ground level when we're thinking about influencing these metrics is like, what exactly do our good customers do? And how can we help other customers do those things? And then we ladder up into the big stuff. Yeah. And you don't have to give any secrets here, but you're saying if they do a specific thing in your product or take advantage of a feature that like sets off a good flag that, boy, they're they probably going to stay with us for a long time then. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then where, where do you think this should happen? Like, you know, looking at product analytics, customer analytics within the application, where, I mean, Maybe where did you start or where do you think founders should start thinking about this as, say, a formal function versus just kind of anecdotal evidence of what customers are doing with our product? Yeah, it's it's really difficult, right? And I don't know if there is an exact science, but what I would bring it back to is like, you have to be just maniacally focused on the problem that the customer is trying to solve, like maniacally focused on that, right? Because our product does all kinds of stuff that is great, but may not be maniacally focused on the problem the customer is trying to solve, right? So for us, like in our kind of core product, there's a set of things that a customer does when we know like I'm here to solve my very, very specific problem. And we sort of just teased out of those from talking with customers, uh, which of those experiences were the ones that they were perceiving as most valuable. So it's like that I think will get you away from vanity metrics like logins or like monthly active users, those don't actually tell you anything, right? But it's like for us, customers buy Tropic to save money. So if they're in the platform saving money, then we know that what they bought us to do is working. And we've seen that the impact might be 10 or 15% different from customers that do those things in terms of net retention than customers that don't, right? So 
that's what you know RCS and AM teams do is they help customers have that aha moment where they turn the corner and really start realizing the value of Tropic. So I think, you know, maybe a fluffier answer than I wish, but just be maniacally focused on the problem that your customer is trying to solve. And this, this too, like we talked about product market fit a little bit earlier. Every founder that I've ever met, myself included, gets happy years in the early days because they're like, I have such a good idea. I'm so smart. This is going to be the best thing the market's ever seen. And then you hear customers say things like, oh yeah, this is great, but that doesn't actually turn into dollars, right? So like figuring out, do we actually have product market fit here? And then specifically why? Like, what is the thing that is the aha moment that they have where they're like, wow, I can solve this problem in Tropic. That's what we kind of anchor, anchor on. Yeah, really appreciate that insight. And Dave, as we wrap up here, yeah, great learnings and experience that you're sharing so far. Tell us what's coming up next for Tropic. Oh man, so many things are coming up next for Tropic. We have some massive feature releases that I can't talk too much about, but they're game-changing feature releases for us that are going to, you know, basically take us into a new category. We are forming also some partnerships in some exclusive partnerships that I also can't talk about, unfortunately, but those are going to be very exciting. We're continuing to hire. We're continuing to hit the numbers. And, you know, if you're listening and interested, like I'm happy to elaborate more, but uh, I think 2023 is probably the year that we hit our stride. Like, I think that the metrics got to where we wanted them to get to. We started getting recognition. 2024 for us is going to be the year where we aim to dominate the category. And I think we're on our way, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, appreciate that. And just one last question before we wrap up, because you mentioned Insight Partners and you're obviously a well-known, well-known fund. What are your expectations from, you know, if a founder hooks up with one of those larger well-known funds, what, what expectations do you have from them to help your company? Yeah, that's a really good question. So if you had asked me that before we took the money from Insight, I would have said zero expectations. It's just money because every, every fund tells you about the value add. Now that I've worked with Insight Partners, I can say that they have completely smashed that misconception. They have been so incredibly helpful to us. Like we did a massive, super comprehensive pricing and packaging exercise, which I totally underestimated how hard getting pricing right is. It's like one of the hardest things and one of the most important. And what's great about a giant fund like Insight is they have the pattern recognition, right? So they're like, you know, here's our pricing guy. He's done this 200 times and he's seen, you know, 400 portfolio companies that went through a similar exercise. And we plugged in there and, and got some stuff done. When we were doing things like capacity planning for our early kind of gen one sales team, they had a CRO for hire type person that I could talk to. And I just had 30 minutes with them where I was like, here's the model. And he was like, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. And like, that's just, you know, when you have people in your corner that have already seen around the corner that you're about to move around, like there's no substitute. So like, I, I can't, overstate the value that we've gotten from Insight. It's like a deep bench of just really smart resources like that. And they've been a phenomenal partner for us. I love that. Yeah. Like you said, pre-raise, no expectations now. Yes. Ongoing expectations, right? Because a ton of reps, they've seen it, they've done it, and now can lend that operational expertise to, to Tropic. So I love that. Right. So Dave, really appreciate your insight coming on the show today. And if listeners would like to learn more about Tropic, where should we send them online? Have them connect with me on LinkedIn and shoot me a DM and I'll find the right person for you. That's usually where I'm active. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. So reach out to Dave on LinkedIn and I think your your URL is tropicapp.io, uh, correct? That's correct. Yep. All right. So check out tropicapp.io or hit up Dave on LinkedIn, send a direct message uh, for more info. And Dave, really appreciate your time today. 
Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Ben.